All right, today we are uh, in uh, Romans chapter 3, and we are, uh, we're supposed to be looking at verses 21 through 26. I actually want to go back and talk a little bit about a couple verses uh, from last week that I didn't get a chance to say everything about that I wanted to say, Um, but last week we were looking at, uh, uh, I think we started in verse 9, and we went down through verse 20, um, and uh, Paul is uh, there in that passage is wrapping up his conclusion of his argument that he started in the middle of chapter 1 regarding the condition of man. It's been a long, hard study because <laughs> it's not all that enjoyable at places. Uh, talking about the condition of man as sinners. Uh, and so, but we have tried to work through it faithfully and not rush through it. But thankfully today we come to the turning point. And uh, so I've been looking forward to that. Uh, but let's uh, let's kind of review and think back. What are some of the things that we talked about last week, beginning there in verse nine and down through verse twenty again? Uh, what are some of the things you remember that we talked about last week? Okay. Okay. He he starts out there in uh, in verse nine, and the question that's proposed there is: Are we better than they are? That means are the Jews better than the Gentiles? And he kind of seems like to us he's kind of bounced back and forth on that. At one point he says yes, another point he says no, and etc. But here he says no, and so we talked a little bit about that. That as far as the Jews place in salvation history, they they did have an advantage. Uh, it was an advantage to them that they were God's chosen people and that God blessed them the way He did and that He that He came and He spoke directly to them and He tabernacled among them and, and He gave to them the law. So He revealed to them uh, His will and His purposes in a way that the psalmist says He did not do with any other nation. So in one sense, the Jew definitely was advantaged. But in the very important point of moral culpability, the Jew is not better than the Gentile. And then he launches into his uh, final explanation of that. What, uh, what other things did we talk about last week? You made the clear uh, distinction between sin as a condition and uh, the plural Sins. Okay. It's easy for us to, or non-believers in particular, to think, "Well, I don't do that sin there, so I'm okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not that bad." Yeah. But that we are, we are under a condition of sin. Okay. And he points 
points that out. He's talking about that in verse 9. We are under that condition. Okay. It affects everything. And, uh, and what was the significance of his use of the word under? Okay. Yeah. 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 That's right. It has dominion over us. Sin has dominion. It's a power operating our lives that controls us and rules our lives. And as we'll see as we go through uh, Romans, we'll see he he uses the uh, the metaphor slavery to talk about our relationship to sin. But yeah, that's a good point that that Paul talked almost exclusively about sin in Romans as opposed to sins plural. Okay, and that is an important distinction to make. What else? <clears throat> Depending on your translation, uh, you may uh, some translations uh, the way they format their text they do it a little differently than others. But like in the New American, uh, beginning there in the middle of verse ten. And down through verse 18, it's very clearly set off, uh, formatted in such a way that we can see that these are quotations from the Old Testament. Okay, so it's actually a series of verses from the Old Testament that Paul is quoting. What are some of the things we learn from this series of quotations? This is some commentators call it Paul's string of pearls there in Romans chapter nine. Okay, okay. Uh, It's just a pretty bleak picture, isn't it, that we see? Uh, And uh, and we pointed out that 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 the verses you can kind of break those verses down or that those quotations down into kind of two groupings, and uh, and and in the first grouping. Uh, you'll notice how he says there is none righteous, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And uh, you can. Uh, so the point there in those first few verses of the quotations is the is the extent, the universal extent of this condition of sin. It go. It applies to everybody. There is none. He says that's righteous. All have turned aside. And so he's stressing that this sin extends to all mankind. But in the following verses, he talks about their mouth is full of cursing, their feet are swift to shed blood. He says their throat's an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And and what, uh, what seems to be emphasized in those verses is is not the extent across mankind of, of sin, which he emphasized in the first few verses, but rather the pervasiveness of sin in the individual. And we have a theological term for that. What is that? Total depravity. Okay, That's the theological term that you'll hear that's basically just talking about what Paul is talking about in those verses. It's how sin has permeated and affected every part of our being. Now, we did draw, uh, we did uh, 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 explain very carefully that when we talk about 
total depravity. We're not saying that every person is as bad as they can be because clearly every one of us could do worse than we have done. Okay, So it's not that we are as bad as we could be, but it's rather that sin contaminates and stains everything we do. So even when we do the best that we can do, those even those good things that we do are stained and permeated and affected uh, by our sin. So we have the extent of sin to all mankind and the pervasiveness of sin, total depravity to every part of our being and every act and motive and thought that we have. And those are some of the things that Paul is pointing out. What else? I am. What, uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, we just barely touched on verses 19 and 20 uh, at the end of our lesson last week. So let's just go ahead and pick that up since, uh, since Jim gave me the segue here. Let's go ahead and pick that up. One of the things we talked about, we did talk about last week, is, is that the reason Paul is citing these Old Testament references is uh, because he wants to point out that every mouth is closed and all the world is held accountable to God. And we talked about that. We also talked about the fact that uh, by the works of the law, no flesh would be justified in his sight because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. But I want to talk a little bit more about these two verses because you'll notice that he says in verse 19 Uh, after he's gone through this lengthy quotation from the Old Testament, the longest quotation from the Old Testament that we see in any of Paul's epistles. And then he says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And what Paul's point is there is he has just detailed or or cited all these Old Testament quotes. And as I mentioned, there are several different verses there, from very, primarily from Psalms and, and Isaiah, but also possibly, as I mentioned, from Ecclesiastes. But he has, he has gone through this list of verses, and then he says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And Paul's point there is, I just... I've just cited these passages to you from the law. Now, this is one exception. This is maybe the, we could say the exception that proves the rule. We talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Paul's use of the word law in Romans and all the various different ways he used the law and one of uh, used the word law. One of the things we said is that when you see the article D before the word law, that typically means he's referring to the Mosaic law or the Pentateuch. Okay. However, this would be an exception to that. It's very clear from the context here that since he's quoting from Psalms and Isaiah and perhaps Ecclesiastes, that here when he's talking about the law at the beginning of verse 19, he's actually talking about the totality of the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, so so what he's saying here is what we know and 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 he's you know, remember he's in this kind of imaginary dialogue with his Jewish opponent, okay? And, 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 but what he's saying here is that both you and I know, both you, the Jew, who's arguing with me and I, we both know this, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. It's not 
first and foremost, written to Gentiles. It's written to the Jews, he says. And his point is, all this stuff that's written about how bad man is, is written to the Jews. So we know that whatever things are written in the law, or the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So his point is, since this is written to the Jews, we know that this is a description of the Jews. Now, that, he's not saying by that that it's not a description of Gentiles. What he's saying is, it's a description of all men, but it's written to you Jews to demonstrate to you that you, like all men, are under sin. Okay, So that's his, that's his argument that he's making here. The Old Testament says that all men are under sin, but it's written to the Jews so that they would also know that they are under sin. This is this whole point that Paul makes, and he'll make it again in the passage that we're looking at today, that there's no distinction when it comes to this issue of moral culpability. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Okay, So then, the reason that the Scripture says this thing to the Jews or to the moralist, if you will, the reason he says these things is that so every mouth would be stopped and all the world would be held accountable, would be shown to be accountable or indicted when they stand before the judgment of God. Because, he says, by the works of the law, no flesh would be justified in his sight because when you are under the law, what you are doing is you are learning about your sin. You're not getting justified. That's his argument. The law does not justify you. The law points out to you your sin. So by the works of the law, no man is justified before God. Now, I want to just bring something to your mind here because we'll get into this as we look at today's verses. When he says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, what works is he talking about? Did they have you turn that air conditioner up? They said it's burning hot. Oh, okay. I'm freezing. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Back to the question at hand. What is included in the works of the law? What would that include? Well, I'm not sure if this is what you're talking about, but it would include their relationship with God. It would be things in keeping their relationship with God correct. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? There includes relationship with other people. Well, uh, yeah, some of the works include relationships to people. You know, if your neighbor's ox falls in the ditch, you know, what do you do, etc. Okay, what else? Ten Commandments? Okay, what else? Living by a righteous, attaining to a righteous standard would be all inclusive of those. Okay, okay. It's, it's actually, uh, yeah, the civil code. Okay, you're, you're, you're hitting on all of it, actually. The works of the law, excuse me? The sacrifices also. Okay, so all the sacrifices, all the ceremonial laws. So when we're talking about the works of the law, we're talking about all the things that the law requires people to do. And there's a whole list of them. 
I think I've heard, you know, I haven't counted them, but I think I heard something like 700 and some commandments in the law, okay? Uh, so that all these things, all the, all the moral commandments, the relational commandments, the ceremonial commandments, the everything. And he says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. You know what that means? Among other things. It means that in offering the animal sacrifices that God told them to offer, no man was justified in his sight. So when those priests brought those sacrifices, the atonement sacrifices, and laid them on the altar and slaughtered the animal and laid them on the altar and poured the blood on the mercy seat, none of those things justified man. What they did was they demonstrated to man that he was a sinner. So we are in pretty dire straits here, aren't we? Here we are, whether you, whether you are one of the most pagan of all the pagans and most wicked of all the wicked, you have the law of God written in your heart and you know you are falling short. If you are the greatest moralist, if you are on the pinnacle of morality and you are the person that everybody looks to and pats on the back and says, what a great good person you are because you are so kind and thoughtful and loving and considerate of other people. If you are the greatest moralist, you are under the wrath of God. But now, he says, but now the righteousness of God, beginning in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a pinnacle passage in all of Scripture. One commentator has said, I doubt that there's been a, a, a greater paragraph ever written than the verses we just read. This is a remarkable truth here. Now, the problem is, some of it we don't understand. Okay. But when we get a grip on it, it really is pretty remarkable what Paul is saying. And he starts out with what words? But now. Okay? It's the, it's the big, another, another commentator has made a comment, are there any two greater words in all of Scripture than the words but now? And we encounter these words periodically throughout the New Testament, both in Paul's writings and elsewhere. We encounter these words when things are looking really, really, really bad. And then he introduces to us some really good news. 
And that's what he's doing here. This is, this is the ultimate but now. We, we've been going now for weeks. We've been belaboring this thing about how we're all under God's wrath and what sinners we are and what a predicament we are in and how no matter how hard we try, we cannot appease the wrath of God over our sin. And we can try to be good, but even the good things that we do are tainted and stained by our sin. And so they just heap even more sin upon us and more of God's judgment upon us. And so we're just... We're in this desperate condition, but now something has happened. And the verse is now, but now the words but now can be taken one in one of two ways. They can be taken as 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 a as a reference to a logical progression. In other words, this is this is my argument so far, but now I'm introducing a new element in within my argument. So it could be taken as a logical progression, or as it could be taken as a temporal progression. Up till now, things have been this way, but now something has happened and now they are this way. And most commentators, and I would agree, most commentators think it ought to be taken in the temporal sense. And one of the reasons I'll just point out to you real quickly, if you'll notice down in verse uh, uh, 26, he says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So Paul, in this paragraph, is making, uh, is, is making a point about something that has just happened in the present tense that has changed the way things have been. So when Paul says at the beginning of the paragraph, but now, what he's saying is, this is the way things have been up till now. But something has happened to change all of that. So up till now, we have been under this wrath of God. We've been under the judgment of God. We've been sinners condemned because we are all totally depraved. We are all, all of our entire being is stained and impacted by sin, which controls us and dominates us. And, and this, has been, uh, this has been going on now for centuries and millennia. This condition has gone on. But now something has happened that apart from the law, he says... The righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, he uses that phrase, the righteousness of God. We have encountered that phrase before. Do you remember? Where did we encounter it? You have to think back a ways now. Okay. You might flip over there. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He's talking about the gospel that has the power of God to save whoever believes in verse 16. And the reason the power of God, the reason the gospel has the power of God to save whoever believes is because, in verse 17, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so what he says is really the crux of the gospel that gives the gospel power to save anybody who believes. The crux of that is this concept of the righteousness of God. And, you've got to put your thinking caps on now. <laughs> I'm testing your Alzheimer's level here, okay? Uh, we talked about what is he talking about here when he uses the term the righteousness of God. For the Apostle Paul, 
the term, the righteousness of God, is kind of a technical term. It refers to something specific. What is he talking about? Do you remember? Okay, he's talking about salvation. Can you elaborate? And don't say no. <laughs> what, what dimension or what aspect of salvation is he talking about? And how do we know he's talking about salvation? Okay, okay. When Paul uses the term the righteousness of God, he's talking about God's saving act in, in theological terms, we say imputing righteousness. Big fancy word, well, actually not so big. But, but it's a fancy word we use that half the time we don't even really think about what it means. But what it simply means is that God, the righteous God, sees us standing before Him as sinners and instead of condemning us to sin, renders a verdict that we are righteous. So, when we encounter the term the righteousness of God, it is the saving act of God in decreeing wicked people to be righteous. Now, if that doesn't raise serious problems in your mind, there's two things you don't understand. One is the holiness and what we mean by the righteousness of God, by God is righteous. And the second thing is you don't understand how wicked you really are. Because when you contemplate the concept that God is righteous and He is decreeing wicked people to be righteous, that should cause a disconnect, at least a momentary disconnect in our minds, shouldn't it? But this is what Paul is talking about. The gospel, the crux of the gospel, is that a righteous God decrees in, 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 in the courtroom of His justice, He decrees wicked people to be righteous. And in Romans chapter 1, He said that happens by faith. Now, so when we encounter the term the righteousness of God in Romans. That's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about God's personal integrity. Now, later in the paragraph that we're looking at, he'll talk about God's righteousness. Okay? Down in verses 25 and 26, right? He'll talk about God's righteousness. Now, there, he is talking about... Commentators disagree, uh, debate this a little bit, but I think it's pretty clear that he is talking about God's integrity, God's righteousness, His holiness. Okay, That's what he's talking about at the end of the paragraph. But at the beginning of the paragraph, he's talking about the righteousness of God that is imputed to man by the decree of God. Okay? Uh, and so what he says is, this righteousness of God, this saving act of God in decreeing wicked people to be righteous is revealed now. It wasn't revealed before. We didn't see this before. We didn't understand this before like we understand it now. But now, he says, apart from the law. He just talked about the law in the previous verse. 
And what he said about the law in the previous verse is that no man is justified by the law. Now, one thing you have to understand when you encounter the word justify or justification in, in uh, the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, and you encounter the word righteous or righteousness, you are really encountering basically the same word. The only difference between them is that one is a noun and the other is a verb. Okay. But it is the same root word in the Greek. So when it says that God justified, what it is saying is God righteousified, if I can use that term. Okay. He made righteous or he decreed righteous. Okay. So when when verse 20, the verse we read last week, says that no flesh is justified by the works of the law, what he's saying is no flesh gets righteous by the law. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. So the law couldn't do this. The law didn't work. All of our good works and our keeping and of, of codes of ethics and morality and all, none of that could make us righteous. None of that could justify us. Because there is no justification under the law. But now, apart from that, there is a revelation of the righteousness of God, of God imputing righteousness to man. And this happens, he says, uh, this happens, he says, or excuse me, before he says that, he says it's been witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he is not dismissing the law and the prophets totally. He's not saying they are completely irrelevant. What he's saying is this righteousness of God was not revealed in the law, but it was witnessed to. And he's going to demonstrate that as we go through Romans and he makes his arguments about being justified and all that sort of thing. He's going to go back and he's going to go back and and he's going to use passages from the Old Testament to show that this has always been the way it would be. So the law and the prophets actually now we learn they did two things. One one thing they didn't do is they didn't justify us. But we do know that they revealed to us our sin but they also did something else. They gave witness to or they testify to this imputed righteousness of God that was going to come through Christ. Okay. Now, that wasn't real clear when we, read, when we read the Old Testament before the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection. Before that, it wasn't real clear. So, as they read, they saw, if you will, through a mere dimly. Okay? They just kind of vaguely saw the vague outlines. I mean, most of you know I have eye problems, eye difficulties, and I have, you know, I have one eye that works pretty good, you know, and then I got another eye, you know. And with my right eye, I can see you all pretty clearly. But with my left eye, you're all just kind of a blur, okay? You're just kind of a blur, okay? Well, the left eye is the Old Testament, the right eye is the New Testament, Okay? Things were just kind of a blur in the Old Testament. You know, I could, you could see out there, but it just wasn't distinct. But, but they still give witness. They give testimony to this righteousness of God. Now, he goes on. And, he's, and he's, 
gets very specific about this righteousness. He wants us to know what righteousness he's talking about. Okay, So he says in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So, he wants to be very specific now that this righteousness of God, this righteousness of God that we get by the decree of God, how do we get it? How does it come to us? Through faith. It is to those who believe. Now, uh, sometimes Bible scholars, they just make things too hard for themselves. Okay. And, and so uh, sometimes uh, they, I think they think things through too hard. But so in this verse, uh, some, some Bible scholars read this, even the righteousness of God, uh, and it says through faith in Jesus Christ, and they, they read that as through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Okay, now there's actually some ulterior motives that are going on in reading it that way. And actually there is, there is uh, some basis in the Greek for wanting to read it that way. Uh, but I think it's, it's pretty clear here what he's talking about is the faith is that it's our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. But that does raise the question, why does he, why does he, why does he mention that twice? Why does he say through faith in Jesus Christ to all those who believe? That sounds redundant, doesn't it? Or it sounds kind of like a tautology. You're like you're arguing in a circle, right? But there is a specific reason why Paul would mention faith twice in this verse in regard to the righteousness of God. He says it is the, it is the righteousness of God that comes through the faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He's actually saying two different things. In his first reference to faith, what he is saying is the righteousness of God comes through faith. That's how you get it. Faith is the only way you get salvation. In the second reference, he says, to all who believe, to all who believe, what he's saying is, in the first case, faith is the necessary item for salvation. In the second case, faith is the efficacious element in salvation for everyone. What am I saying? Well, let me draw a little diagram and maybe you can understand. I could say to you, this, I know for those of you who are diagonal Okies, it doesn't look like it, but this is Oklahoma. Okay? Alright? Okay? <laughs> you didn't know Oklahoma was a circle, did you? Okay? And <laughs> You're right, I do. Well, I could have tried to draw a state, but then you would all really laugh, okay? And this circle inside is Norman. Okay? Now, I can make the statement that everyone who lives in Norman lives in Oklahoma. Is that true? Does that mean that everyone who lives in Oklahoma lives in Norman? No. Okay. That's what Paul is trying to clarify here. What he's trying to say is this is not a representation of what he's trying to say. Here's the representation of what Paul is trying to say. This is faith. And there's only one circle. 
this is what's necessary for salvation. And everyone who does this is saved. You get the distinction? Faith is necessary for salvation. But we could say, well, yeah, it's necessary for salvation, but I also have to do some other things, right? Paul is saying no. Faith is what's necessary for salvation, and everybody who believes has that righteousness. That's his point. So this diagram doesn't work. This is the diagram that works for Paul. And that's what he's trying to say in this verse. Okay? Necessary and sufficient. Yes, exactly right. Good point. Okay. So, he says, this righteousness then from God comes through faith to all those who believe. But then the question is, why is it by faith? Why, does, why, do, we ha- why do we say that the righteousness of God has to come by faith and only by faith. Well, that's what the end of verse 22 and verse 23 is trying to say. Now, we all know verse 23. We were probably made to learn it when we were, you know, crumb crunchers in vacation Bible school that all is sin and come short of the glory of God. But we need to keep that verse in its context and also attach, on, attach the really the first part of this statement there, which is there is no distinction, comes there at the end of verse 22. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why it's got to be by faith. That's why it's got to be by faith for everyone. It can't be by faith for the Gentiles and by the law for the Jews because there's no distinction Because all have sinned and all are falling short, present tense, of the glory of God. What is he saying? He's saying, as you know, the word word there, uh, the Greek word that we translate sin in our Bibles, as you probably know, has the sense of missing the mark. Okay? Well, that's all well and good, but John Wesley makes a point that I think is well taken is we don't miss the mark simply because we're poor marksmen. We miss the mark because we have aimed at the wrong target and hit it squarely. What is the mark we have missed? The mark we have missed is the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, again, commentators say, well, this or this. And I think, well, both. I have no problem with both. Okay. One is the idea of we were created in the image of God. And, and as such, we were, create, we were created to display God's glory. And sin has made it so that even though we still do bear His image, we no longer reflect the glory of God like we are. Wow, what would it be like if you and I, as we went about our lives and walked through Walmart and sat behind our desk at work or whatever, what if we really displayed the glory of God? (laughs) 
What would that do for the people around us? But we've fallen short of that, haven't we? We've missed that because we have missed the mark. We've sinned. We've not, we've not achieved the goal for which we were first created. Secondly, you can have the sense of we were designed to enjoy, delight in, experience, and walk in the presence of God in His glory. And we no longer do that because we've sinned. Not only do we no longer do that now because we sin, but there's really no hope apart from the but now of Romans 3.21. There's no hope that we ever would. And to illustrate this whole idea, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Here, Adam and Eve in the garden and God created them in His image to bear His likeness, to display His glory. So as Adam and Eve walked through the garden and as Adam named the animals and, and they did whatever Adam and Eve did in the garden, we have no, how, we'd have no idea how long they lived before the fall. Uh, I used to think of it was kind of almost instantaneously, but the more, longer I lived, the more I think maybe it was a long time. I don't know how long it was. But, but whatever they were doing, they were just, you know, just everything they did, and every, everything they said and, and their... You know, when they looked at each other and when they talked to each other and when they talked to the elephants and the giraffes, you know, and, and when they talked to God and you know, whatever they did, they were just radiating the glory of God. Kind of like when Moses came down off the mountain, only much more spectacular. And they just, you know, it's difficult for us to imagine what, what Adam and Eve were like before the fall that, you know, we... The, just their physical beauty must have been stunning. But their emotional well-being and their intelligence. Here's a guy who named all the animals. Could you do that? <laughs> this is A, and this is AA, and this is AA. That's all I could do, you know. And this is B, and this is B. You know, that's all I could do. This guy named all the animals, okay? So, just this remarkable wisdom and intelligence that Adam had before the fall. And Eve too. And then every day, actually the Bible doesn't say this, we kind of read it into between the lines, but I think it's probably true. Every day God comes down into the garden and He walks with them through the garden. The God of glory who dwells in unapproachable light comes down and just, you know, let's go for a walk. And where do you want to walk today? Oh, let's walk up on that mountain. Do they have mountains back? I don't know. Let's walk up on that mountain. Okay, and so in the glory of God, they just walk along in fellowship with God. And then, in one moment in time, they forfeited all of that. In one moment in time, they did what God told them not to do. And they no longer reflected the glory of God as they had before. The image of God was not completely lost, but in theological terms we say it was effaced. It was blurred. It was diminished. What a shock it must have been for Adam to look at Eve that first moment after the glory of God in her had been effaced. 
and vice versa. And then when they anticipated God coming to walk in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day, what did they do? They ran and hid. They ran and hid. Why? Because no longer now could they enjoy the presence of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23, folks. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without distinction, every one of us, Jew and Gentile, pagan of pagans, moralist of moralists, every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why, friends, it's got to be by faith that we recover the righteousness of God. It's got to be by faith. Because there's nothing I can do. There is nothing I can do. Because everything that I do, all of my righteousness is like filthy rags. Everything that I try to do just makes matters worse. But now, apart from the law, the salvation, the salvific act of God in decreeing wicked people to be righteous has been revealed. That righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So that, he says, we are being justified as a gift, he says, by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So from 118, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, we've been getting this picture of a holy God who's standing up here and is outraged at our sin. And that is an accurate picture. As one commentator I was reading this week said, God didn't get converted between the Old and New Testament. <laughs> that is an accurate picture, friends. He was full of wrath and indignation and offended at my sin and at your sin. And in the patience of God, He was holding that wrath back. But something else was happening. While he was doing that, he was also standing there holding out his hand with a gift. Saying, here's a gift, Rick. I'm, oh, I am really mad with you. <laughs> I'm really angry about your sins. But here's a gift. It's free. It's by grace. It is the ransom of my son. It is the redemption which comes through Jesus Christ. That word there is the idea of ransom. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting because one, uh, one commentator was pointing out that in the two centuries leading up to this time in, in, in history when Paul writes the book of Romans, this word, the Greek word here that's translated redemption here, uh, oftentimes translated ransom in other places, 
uh, is a word that was used to refer to, and I thought this was interesting, to refer to the ransom that was paid uh, for prisoners of war and for slaves and for convicted criminals. Wow. (laughs) All three of them pretty much nail me, don't they? That's what I am. I'm a prisoner of war and I'm a slave and I'm a convicted criminal. But God paid a ransom. God paid a ransom to buy me out. Now, I like that word ransom better than the word redemption. Maybe it's a personal thing. How many, how many of you all remember trading stamps? Okay, remember trading stamps? s green stamps, okay, or gold bond stamps or whatever, you know. And, and if you wanted to cash in your, your, your books of s green stamps to get a lamp for your living room, where did you go? The Redemption Center. You went to the Redemption Center and you cast him in, okay? So when I first started encountering the word redemption in the Bible, you know, as, as, as an adult where I could think it through, I always made that association, you know. So redemption doesn't have a lot of power to me, but boy, that word ransom does. Because that's what he did. He ransomed me. He bought me. Now, we're going to encounter some difficult aspects of this. We're not going to finish this passage today, obviously. We're going to encounter some difficult aspects of this concept of God's ransom and what we call, what theologians call propitiation. It's a word that's used here in the next verses. But we're going to encounter that. We're going to deal with some of the difficult aspects of that next week. But do not lose sight of this, folks. That the God who was so angry with you over your sin is also the same God who tenderly stretched out His hands to you and said, here's a gift for you. There's nothing you have to do for it. All you need to do is believe. All you need to do is trust Me that My Son has paid the ransom to set you free. Being justified. as a gift by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Well, we'll pick it up next week.